As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, uh, it has to be said that there are many ironies to come out of the coronavirus crisis, but one of the big ones has to do with the fact that the outbreak started in China in early 2020, and yet China had the best performing economy that year. Yeah, I think it was the only major economy that actually um, grew overall in 2020, mm-hmm. which is pretty extraordinary. And I don't really know if it's if it's true or if it will be durably true. But I do think there's this sort of meme out there that like China won 2020 in some way that it came out ahead. And yeah. I don't actually I'm not I haven't yet necessarily been convinced of it. But because of China's growth and the quick rebound and its successful suppression of the virus, that is like a thing people say. Yeah. So China's GDP grew, I think it was 2.3 percent last year, which means it was the only major economy, as, as you mentioned, to escape contraction, which is pretty amazing. And then, of course, people have been pitching China's experience in 2020 as sort of like proof of the benefits of a command economy. When you have something like an outbreak uh, in a country with a very strong government, you can control the population, you can put in place restrictions and things that are ultimately going to make it easier to uh, to fight the virus. And of course, you can pull a bunch of levers to boost economic activity as well. So most people have been talking about what an exceptional year it was for China sort of proves that their economic model might be more resilient than some people think. But there are people out there who think that actually 2020 wasn't as good a year for China as it's been portrayed, and that if anything, China is coming out of 2020 in a more vulnerable position. Yeah, I don't think there's, you know, it seems too early to know, right? So yes, it grew. Um, I'm I'm thinking back to our episode with Dan Wong from a few weeks ago, where he said, like, his lessons from 2020 were A, that on some level, the government is more tough and brutal than he appreciated, but also in his view that the uh, there's a can-do spirit to Chinese business and the economy that he thinks is unmatched elsewhere. But I still think that, you know, regardless of what the situation is right now, we 
it's very much a jump ball open question of what the long term economic ramifications are going to be from this extraordinary uh, past 12 months, basically. Right. Of course, time will ultimately tell. But given that we are coming up to the one year anniversary of or by the time we release this episode, we'll probably be in the midst of the one year anniversary of uh, the big market sell off and the virus really um, sort of expanding in the rest of the world. I I think the China experience is worth discussing. Um, And of course, we can talk about whether or not the strength that we saw in 2020, A, exists and B, will continue into 2020. 21. So I'm happy to say we have the perfect person um, on to talk about this, someone who's been on Odd Lots before. It's uh, Michael Pettis, finance professor over at Peking University and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Everyone enjoys his thoughts on China. He's probably one of the best China commentators out there. So we're really grateful to have him on the program again. Michael, thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back. So did we get that right? China had 2.3% GDP growth in 2020. Lots of commentators described that as proof of Chinese exceptionalism, proof of the economic model. But you've written that you saw it slightly differently. What was China's year like for you? How strong was the economy actually? Well, the the, the first point that I make pretty often and probably uh, the last time we spoke is that uh, GDP in China means something very different than it means in other countries. GDP in China is an input, and uh, in other countries, it's a measure of output. And that makes it non-comparable. What what happened uh, last year in China is that there are basically two types of growth that Beijing focuses on. There is what, what we call a high quality growth, which is really the growth in consumption the growth in business investment, which is closely tied to the growth in consumption and growth in exports. And then there is the growth that everyone recognizes is low quality growth, which Beijing has uh, has pledged to reduce. And that's the growth that arises from increases in public sector infrastructure spending, much of which is, is really non-productive. And in real estate development, and it's not a big secret that China has one of the fastest growing debt ratios, debt burdens in the world, mostly generated by this uh, investment in, um, in, in public sector infrastructure and real estate development. So um, what matters is how growth developed last year. And, and it's no big uh, uh, surprise, it's no big secret that you know, the quality growth, that is uh, consumption and business investment, were down quite substantially. Exports were up, but collectively they were net down. And the only reason China had uh, 2.3% real GDP growth is because of a 7% surge in real estate development. And uh, I forget the number, but more than more than 3 or 4% growth in public sector uh, infrastructure spending. And you can see that in you know the uh, soaring steel prices copper prices sales of machinery etc cetera, etc cetera. now if this stuff was good growth there wouldn't be a big debate about trying to restrain it you know if 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 you spend 100 dollars to build the bridge and it makes you 150 dollars richer there shouldn't be any debate about whether or not you should build the bridge the fact that there is such a bridge is a recognition that it's really not worth 100 dollars it's worth less than that 
And that's the growth that was generated. That's what took China from a negative growth rate to a positive growth rate. And the corollary of that, of course, mm -hmm. is that China's debt to GDP ratio went up 25 percentage points last year. The year before that was pretty bad. It went up six percentage points. So that really gives you an idea of how China generated growth this year. You could argue that that was a, a great accomplishment, but you could also argue that it left the economy worse off, not better off. You know, on this question of um, disaggregating high quality growth and low quality growth, I mean, one of the things that, I, you know, since I've been following markets and e economics for a little over uh, a decade now professionally, I remember like 2009, 2010, and they posted those videos on YouTube of the so-called uh, ghost cities or, you know, all these apartment towers that were completely unoccupied. They're like, oh, look at all this wasteful spending. Or there would be like a train station, but no city around it. And then it seems like years later, those cities did actually end up becoming occupied. And those train stations that seemed like they were in the middle of nowhere looked like uh, actually people are using them. So A, is that true that a lot of what was characterized as malinvestment did become productive investment? And B, how can one identify in real time that what you characterize as bad growth or mediocre growth, um, low quality growth, is in fact going to be um, unproductive public investment? The, the answer to your first question is that China is a huge country. It's really, really, I, I don't like to use specific examples because you can prove anything you want. There certainly are areas that were considered to be overbuilt that filled up. Uh, there are even more areas that have never really filled up. Uh, if you go to Tianjin, for example, uh, they decided that they wanted to become uh, one of the leading financial centers of China. There's about 10 cities that want to do that. And the way you become a leading financial center, according to Tianjin, is you build an entire Manhattan worth of office buildings uh, uh, on the outskirts of the city. And they did that. Uh, that area is quite visited, but it's visited by tourists. Nobody actually lives there. And it's really spectacular. You've got all these beautiful buildings, just thousands of them. They're all empty. So you can, you know, it's easy for you to find examples or counter examples. That's why I look at the aggregate numbers. And China has had the highest investment growth rate in history for 40 years and the highest investment share of GDP of any country in history, 10 percentage points higher than number two, which was uh, South Korea for a brief period. But China's had it for 30 or 40 years. And that alone should worry you. But more importantly is the debt trajectory, because when you borrow money to fund investment, if the investment is productive, by definition, your debt to GDP ratio can't go up because while your debt goes up, your GDP should be going up at least as quickly. Chinese debt rose very quickly in the 1990s, but nobody noticed it because GDP rose even more quickly. It was only during some period around the first decade of the century where suddenly the growth in debt picked up and accelerated while the growth in GDP slowed down. Because most of the debt goes to fund investment, that cannot possibly happen if the, uh, if the investment is productive. You know, in theory, if you invest in, in kindergartens, 
you don't get the results for another 20 or 30 years, but that's a tiny part of the investment. Most of it is uh, bridges and subways and things like that, and we haven't seen the benefits yet. So in my mind, there's no question that much of this investment is uh, misallocated. But what I think doesn't matter, clearly Beijing is very worried about this. This is why they're having this huge debate about how much growth they need. If the growth was good, you shouldn't debate it. If you can get 8%, get 8%. If you can get 10%, get 10%. But they're not trying to get 8% or 10%, which they easily could. They have the debt capacity because clearly they don't believe in that growth. And that's why you have all of this talk about rebalancing and dual circulation. This is a clear recognition that there is a serious problem with the quality of growth. Could you dive into that a little bit more? So Beijing is obviously looking at a trade-off between economic growth and more debt accumulation. How are they thinking about that? And what are the political calculations that you see them making at the moment? Well, in a couple of weeks, we'll start the uh, famous uh, two sessions. Typically, uh, that's when they set out the plans for the year and for, for people like you and me. Uh, the most important part of the two sessions is that they announce the GDP growth target for the year. Most years, we know by December what the GDP growth target is. Last year, there wasn't one. And this year, there probably won't be a GDP growth target. But it's clear that there is a ferocious debate about growth versus debt. So you have one group of people saying it is really important to keep the growth rate as, uh, as high as possible, by which... You know, a lot of people are saying GDP growth this year in China will be 8 to 10%. I don't think that's the case. I think they're more likely to go either between 6 and 7% if the debt guys have the upper hand, or uh, 7 and 8% if the growth guys have the upper hand. But either way, that's the, the, the nature of the debate that we're hearing. On the one hand, you have the politicos, the provincial leaders, and, you know, some of the military and foreign affairs guys saying we need to keep growth rates as high as possible. On the other hand, there's almost unanimity among academics, uh, um, the central bank, people in the Ministry of Finance and the banking regulators, uh, almost unanimity, not complete, saying that, no, we absolutely have to get debt under control. And so that's really what the discussion is going to be. Uh, but it's very hard to do. You cannot get debt under control, in my opinion, unless you're willing to accept growth rates of 2 to 3% or maybe even lower. And I don't think even the hardest core debt warriors are willing to, uh, to see growth drop that quickly. So, you know, thinking back pre-virus, and I think, I don't remember when we had you on before, but it's been a consistent theme of your work. And we should, of course, mention the book that you uh, published this last year with Matt Klein, uh, Trade Wars or Class Wars which uh, seemed very timely. But this idea that Chinese growth has sort of come, come at the expense of household buying power, that it's so uh, heavily focused on investment, not much consumption, Chinese uh, households are forced to, or de facto forced to save a lot. You know, when, when, the, when the crisis hit, it made me wonder, it's like, well, is this going to change? Is, is there going to be an increase in the social safety net so that households don't have to spend more? Will there be more public health uh, spending? And will that infrastructure get built out? Also sort of uh, allowing uh, consumers to spend more. It seemed like that could be a catalyst for some meaningful change along that dimension. And I'm curious, you know, 
in the short term, yes, okay, lots of the growth has been, um, you know, government uh, spending on infrastructure. But is there any shift afoot in this sort of rebalancing of the economy that you've been talking about for years? Well, there's certainly a lot more uh, uh, a focus on it, and it's become very fashionable now for uh, local government officials to make one announcement after another that their boosting consumption or upgrading consumption was the uh, was the fashionable phrase. But the problem is that we we know why the consumption share of GDP in China is so low. It's it's just arithmetic. Households, ordinary households. They retain the lowest share of GDP uh, of any country probably in history. And as a result, since most consumption is household consumption, if you have a low household consumption share, a uh, low household uh, uh, income share, then you're going to have a low household consumption share. So how do you resolve that problem? Well, there's really only two ways. And again, this is just arithmetic. You can, you can keep shops open later at night, which they're proposing to do. You can, you know, make shopping malls more, more beautiful and, and you can improve online delivery, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that has an impact on, on, uh, on consumption because basically the way you consume is you have a, uh, an income and out of that income, you serve a certain, you save a certain amount and then, you know, the rest is your consumption budget. If you spend more money late at night, you're going to spend less money in the day. There's only two ways to get you to consume a bigger share of GDP. One way is to encourage lots of consumer debt. And that happened in the last five or six years. Uh, household debt surged uh, to, by some measures, higher than it is in the U.S. Uh, um, and then the other way is to increase the household income share. And that's what you're talking about by strengthen strengthening the social safety net, raising wages, you know, all of these various measures. But the problem is that if I increase your share of GDP, by definition, I have to reduce somebody else's share. And that's the part that's never discussed. Um, but we know basically, again, it's just arithmetic. You have to reduce the share retained by um, uh, uh, local governments and the local elites in order to increase the share retained by ordinary households. You could also do it by screwing the business sector, but they don't want to do that because the business sector is the best part of the economy. But this is politically really tough to do. And again, it's nothing new. We've known this for a while. It's just politically extremely difficult to manage these transfers. And, and that's what they have to resolve. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So in a year like 2020, where we saw the government ramp up spending in non-productive parts of the economy, and we also saw uh, Chinese manufacturing really come roaring back, partly because 
or mostly because the U.S. and uh, the rest of the world were buying lots of things like face masks and, and computers. How much of that rebalancing that China has been trying to do for so long now, you know, moving more of its economy towards consumption, how much of that actually got undone in 2020? And how difficult is it going to be to kind of um, reverse that dynamic? Well, first, Tracy, let me tell you, I'm a little bit skeptical about the traditional argument for the surge in China's trade surplus. I don't think it was because people bought lots of masks Mm. and, and things like that. Because had that been the story, the increase in Chinese export earnings would normally have led to an increase in Chinese imports, and it didn't. Imports were actually down. So my my view is a little bit different. If you look at how China responded to COVID-19, not just China, there were a few other countries in Asia that did the same thing. Uh, it was very different from the way the U.S. and Europe responded. In the U.S. and Europe, this was treated mainly as a demand side problem. And most of the policy responses were aimed at boosting demand and basically by distributing income to households. So what you see in Europe and in the U.S. is that the proxy for consumption recovered quite strongly. The proxy for industrial production was still negative for the year. But in China, the response was very different. There was very little demand-side boost, basically nothing. It was all supply-side boost, cutting taxes on corporates, improving logistics, subsidizing manufacturing, et cetera. So last year, industrial production recovered very strongly. It was positive. The proxy for consumption was negative. I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it was 5 or 6% negative. So there's only, you know, there's only one way or there's only a couple of ways you can resolve it. If your industrial production recovers much more strongly than your consumption, then the only ways to resolve it is either with a significant increase in investment, which we saw, or if the rest of the world has the opposite reaction, you can also resolve it with a significant increase in your trade surplus. And that's what happened in in China. Exports surged. Imports actually dropped last year, which shouldn't happen when exports surge. Uh, But the result was China is now running some of the biggest monthly trade surpluses that it has in its history. Now, this is a problem because the reason the U.S. and Europe boosted the demand side is, of course, they want that increase in demand to feed into a boost in supply side and employment at home. And part of it did, but part of it leaked abroad to Asia. And I know uh, um, some of our friends at Treasury are looking at this very, very closely. Now, I don't know how how long it can go on that China can run these huge trade surpluses, but I would guess that this is going to create increasing tensions during the year, which means that China has to find a different way of resolving this, either more investment, which it doesn't want to do, or much more pressure on rebalancing income, which, as I said, is is easy to explain, but politically really hard to pull off. I'm glad you brought in the international tension because I was, you know, curious your take. It seems like the U.S. is really in the middle of a pretty serious 
ideological policy pivot in terms of its appreciation of the power of uh, fiscal stimulus. And of course, we saw one of the biggest uh, fiscal packages of all time with uh, the CARES Act basically a year ago. We saw another uh, round of checks go out at the end of 2020. It looks like we're going to get yet another uh, pretty substantial uh, stimulus, uh, perhaps almost as much as two trillion. Again, lots of checks. And we might get another uh, spending plan even after that later in 2021 uh, if uh, Biden can push forward the Build Back Better plan, which would presumably be more long term and um, you know, infrastructure based. But you, you, you mentioned this idea of the, the fiscal stimulus leaking and ultimately turning into income for, for China. And I'm curious, uh, A, how you see that emerging as we get further rounds of stimulus and B, just in your view, how U.S. policymakers should be thinking about uh, using fiscal firepower in the most effective way such that it actually has uh, its uh, its desired goal of making the U.S. economy more robust? Well, I, I think you're, you're right, Joe. In the 70s, we decided that uh, fiscal policy doesn't work. It's all monetary. And I think now we're, you know, we're reversing. We're figuring that uh, monetary policy no longer works. It's got to be fiscal. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. It seems to me that there are a couple of things that the U.S. can do uh, um, that are that 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 would be quite positive for U.S. growth. First of all, if you believe that there is a demand side problem and that the reason businesses aren't investing is not because the cost of capital is too high, but because there is no demand, then it seems to me that if you can create demand, for example, by uh, increasing the income of ordinary households, then businesses will begin to invest and the cost of, of, of those transfers to the household sector becomes self-liquidating because while we increase either through debt or monetary creation, the income of the household sector, there's no inflationary or debt impact because the supply side will automatically adjust. Americans will produce more stuff or they'll produce the same amount of stuff with less household debt. Um, so there will be no net cost to the U.S. It's a self-liquidating process. The other self-liquidating process, in my opinion, and I know there's some controversy about this, uh, I'm surprised that there is, but the U.S. has really bad infrastructure. It has enormous opportunities to upgrade the infrastructure, in which case, again, if you fund it by debt or if you fund it by money creation, it doesn't really matter because whatever increase on the demand side, the increase on the supply side is even greater. Um, obviously, if you repair the roads in New York City, the uh, the savings to American car owners is much greater than the cost of repairing the roads and and on and on and on. So the um, the U.S. can do both of these things, and I think they're the right things to do. And the long term infrastructure is probably more important, but in the short term, boosting household income for the poorest is extremely important. And the point is that in either case, it's not going to create a burden for the U.S. because in either case, it'll boost the supply side at, at least as much as it boosts the demand side. The problem is that the U.S. is also acting, and it's not a problem for the world, it's a problem for the U.S., is also acting as, again, the consumer of last resort that is, that is supplying demand for many other economies. And I think if the U.S. were able to address that problem, either in some sort of multilateral convention or unilaterally if necessary, it would get a much greater bang for its domestic buck. So I have what might be a stupid question, but um, Joe described this ideological shift 
underway in the U.S. and how people and certainly politicians think about fiscal stimulus. And uh, we've been talking about some of the weaknesses of China's own stimulus measures in 2020 and this idea that a lot of them went into unproductive uh, corners of the economy rather than directly into workers' pockets so as to boost consumption. Why doesn't China just do stimulus through direct payments or, uh, you know, a system similar to um, the checks being written in the U.S.? Like in many ways, you would think that that would fit into China's professed um, ideology of communism. Like, you know, the idea that they're helping workers. Why don't they just give people money? It's an interesting question. I mean, some people argue that China has really never developed an institutional framework for doing that. For 40 years, the only thing it's really known how to do is to boost the supply side. When they tried to boost uh, household incomes, again, they didn't do it by, by transferring income to the household sector. They did it by subsidizing employment costs, right. which, if they work, work by increasing supply more than demand. Um, the other argument is that there are huge political implications to these types of transfers. To, to give you an idea that I often use, household income in China is roughly 50% of GDP. So one way you can think about it is that there is a parity between the household sector and the non-household sector, uh, non-household being businesses and government. Uh, for most countries, uh, household income is 70 to 80% of GDP. So even for China to get halfway to normal in terms of the distribution of income, we have to shift from an economy in which households are roughly the same size as non-households to an economy in which households are two to three times the size of non-households. And if you don't want that shift to be paid for by businesses, then by definition, it's got to be paid for by governments. And I would submit to you that that huge shift in relative income must have a political implication, a pretty significant political implication, which I think is very, very hard for China to deal with. I have another uh, perhaps stupid question, but it's something that you brought up uh, that you brought up. And also, I think you brought up on the last episode and I meant to ask it and I felt dumb at the time. So I'm just going to ask it now. When you talk about the um, the income that's gained by local governments. Why is that such a difficult source of income to to touch? And who is actually benefiting from that? Are there local politicians that in some way or another end up pocketing it? Is Are there projects that extend their power? Like, talk to us about why that, because that's not so much of a thing here. Like, why is that such a politically difficult uh, thing to fight? Well, um, that's a little politically sensitive, but I'll talk about a case that happened a few years ago under under Bo Shilai because, you know, he's a bad guy, so we're allowed to say this. But one of my former students worked in a private equity fund in, in his city, I, I think when he was the mayor, was it of Harbin, before he became the mayor of Chongqing, and it, it invested in a company that makes locks. And the principal of this company was very close to some senior people in the government. Three months after they invested in the company that makes locks and keys, the city announced that for security reasons, all uh, locks and keys in government buildings were going to be changed. And I, I don't need to tell you who got the mandate to do that. 
I think there is a very strong connection between local elites and local governments. And even in China, that's been discussed. Remember in, in 2007, when Wen Jiabao gave his famous speech about how we need to rebalance the economy, within a few months of that speech, you started to see in the Chinese press the phrase vested interest. These were the terrible groups that were opposing uh, uh, measures that Beijing was trying to make to rebalance income. And then uh, it didn't work until 2012 when, uh, when Xi Jinping became secretary. And that's when you started to see this very strong anti-corruption campaign, which many people argued was as much about politics as it was about corruption. Again, I don't want to you know, speak too openly about it because these are sensitive topics. But I think there is a perception in China, a very clear perception, that the ability of local governments to control enormous amounts of assets is closely allied to the wealth of local elites. Got it. So it is sort of like it's still it's kind of business income, even though we, we talk. Uh, sorry, just to clarify. So when you talk about like, OK, there's local government income, and there's business income. And we, you know, if we're going to increase buying power of the household sector, one of those has to get touched. It's kind of also business income. It's just perhaps a little bit more politically connected business income. Sure. Today, there was an announcement by uh, by several large cities in which they're changing the land auction system. And I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but several of my friends have told me that this new system will benefit the largest real estate developers at the expense of the smaller ones. You know, it's really useful to have some control over these kinds of policies. Again, I'm speaking sort of euphemistically, but, but you know, you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Some of it also, I think, is just the problems of execution in a country as big as China and this idea that you get an edict that might be handed down from Beijing, but local governments will carry it out in different ways, not necessarily always because of corruption, but maybe because of incompetence or something like that. Like there's a wide, well, there's a huge room for um, for interpretation on a lot of these. Also just institutional rigidities. Any mayor can very quickly build a new right. bridge, but he won't necessarily know how to distribute income uh, to the household sector. Yeah, this is the, I think this is an underappreciated thing because people think, oh, China has this command economy. If Beijing says, you know, flip a switch and start lending, like, more lending from banks, for instance, people think that's really easy to do. But actually, um, we find that often like the banks have to think through this stuff. Sometimes the mandate isn't exactly clear. And so it's not as easy as it seems. But anyway, since um, since Joe and I seem to be in asking stupid question mode, uh, I have another one for you, which is we've been talking about how the policy response in 2020 has probably led to a further accumulation in debt. Uh, we've seen lots of investment in things like the real estate sector. You just mentioned another uh, land reform effort. We have seen Beijing take a lot of steps to prop up the property sector recently. What's the downside of China accumulating more debt? Because at the moment, in other parts of the world, uh, like the U.S., for instance, people seem to be growing more comfortable with the idea of the government taking on debt in order to fund stimulus. Why is it a bad thing for China? Well, the simple answer is that if it weren't, it'd be very easy to put together a policy that made everyone a real millionaire overnight. And, and clearly that makes no sense. 
but we don't really know where are the limits of debt, but we know a couple of things. First off, when debt levels rise quickly enough that there is real uncertainty about how um, debt payment, debt servicing costs are going to be allocated. You know, basically there's two types of debt. You can borrow money that's self-liquidating. In other words, you use the money to create the value that pays off the debt. And and then you can borrow money for projects that are not self-liquidating. And in that case, the only way you can repay the debt is through implicit or explicit transfers. You can you can tax the, the people, you can lower wages, you can expropriate wealth, you can default. You know, there's all these different ways you can inflate it away. And those are just ways of assigning the cost of, of servicing the debt. Uh, the problem with that is that we all know that. And once uncertainty levels are high enough, we've seen this in country after country, economic agents change their behaviors in ways designed to protect themselves. For example, flight capital, which we've seen in China. Private sector businesses uh, disinvest, which again, we're seeing in China. Maybe you see workers organize. Maybe you see the middle class take their money out of the banking system. We're not seeing that yet. But once you reach that point, it becomes self-reinforcing and you want to avoid that point. Uh, That's true for any country. Uh, And I would say that in China, with debt growing so much faster than GDP and real, real skepticism, with real skepticism about the true value of that GDP, that's a real risk. You don't want to find out where the limit is, but there has to be a limit. The, the second thing, and this is where China is very different from other countries, is that um, when you borrow money and spend it on something that doesn't create value, from an accounting point of view, you should expense it. But in China, it isn't expense. It's capitalized. So if I borrow $100 and spend it on something that's worth 20, I should take an $80 write down, but I don't. I carry the whole thing at $100. That means that there is $80 of recorded wealth that isn't real wealth, right? The total wealth of the country is overstated on paper relative to the real wealth of the country. And that has to be amortized. That is automatically amortized over time. But you don't see the amortization as long as debt continues to grow more quickly than the amount that is implicitly amortized. But that requires an acceleration in the growth rate of debt. And at some point, when you can no longer accelerate the growth rate in debt, you start implicitly amortizing all of these costs, which means basically you start to take losses. And they subtract from the GDP growth number, as well as setting off what we call financial distress costs. Uh, I, I, I apologize if it's a little bit pedantic, but basically we no, know that you don't have infinite debt capacity, but we don't know when you reach your limit. We also don't want to find out. And I think that's the problem with the rise in debt in China. So I do think to your to this to your last answer that one of the strengths of your approach and I would say the approach of a lot of sort of more heterodox economists is the sort of deep understanding of accounting. And not that accounting is everything, but that if you don't understand accounting, you you miss a lot of this stuff. But that being said, there is more than accounting. And uh, we have you know, we we I mentioned we we had a recent episode on the rise of uh, Chinese semiconductor industry and some other domestic industries, things that actually, you know, technological improvements, increases in productive capacity as the country gets uh, richer and has more know-how. 
How do you see that developing? Just, uh, you know, accounting aside, this sort of the boom in uh, sort of world class or the attempt to achieve sort of world class corporations that whether on a tech basis or sort of cultural export basis, I mean, we see it with TikTok, are really ByteDance, are really uh, emerging in China. And how much is that sort of changing the equation, so to speak? Well, uh, you're right about accounting. Accounting doesn't tell you the truth, but it tells you things that are clearly not true, and it allows you to dismiss a lot right. of stuff. On, on, on the issue of investment in high tech, that gets a huge amount of attention. It's very sexy. Everybody loves it. But we have to, you know, we have to make two points here. First of all, it's very, very small. And when you compare it to total investment in China, it's tiny. If you want, you know, for years and years, China has said, don't worry about the investment problem. All we have to do is shift out of bad investment into productive good investment, for example, high tech. And, that, and that's that problem solved. Well, they've been talking about this for 10, 15 years, and it hasn't really happened. And I liken that a little bit to, you know, don't worry about your child getting an education. All she has to do is win the lottery ticket and she won't need an education. Yeah, it's true. But winning the lottery ticket is quite hard. And so far, very few countries have been able to pull this off. It's a huge amount of new investment that has to replace this old, uh, uh, less valuable investment. But the other problem is that we don't really know how to cost a lot of this. I think Chinese online retail is a miracle. I think it was also created when nobody was watching because basically all these very smart kids leapfrog a terribly creaky retail distribution system. Uh, but I, I'm not sure all these other areas, you know, the super fast computers, the satellites, the high-speed rail network, I'm not sure how economically successful they are. They are great programs, right? There's spectacular technology. But it's only sustainable if the economic value added of that technology is greater than the cost. And it's very easy to come up with cases in history where a lot of trophy investment in technology in the long run turned out not to be sustainable. So we just don't know. But for me, the key problem is that, you know, this is great stuff, but it's just not big enough to replace all the railroads and bridges and empty buildings. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. 
You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So given the investment in unproductive or less productive industries, given the debt accumulation, and given, I know you took some issue with this idea, but given the idea that strong manufacturing probably helped China offset um, some weaknesses in 2020, and we can debate by how much, but how vulnerable do you see the economy, the Chinese economy in 2021, this year, as things presumably start to normalize, um, maybe as the spending boom in the U.S. starts to die down a little bit, uh, what's going to happen to China? Well, I think 2021 is going to, to be a very good year for China, in which it looks like it will have achieved uh, many of its objectives, but it'll only be really, by, by 2022, it'll start to change again. And the reason is because in China, like in most other countries, we saw a huge increase in the household savings rate last year. You know, we can debate about the reasons. Part of it had to do when you're locked in and locked up in home, you can't go out and, and shop. It's much harder to shop. Obviously, you're not going to restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of that increase in savings was simply because I wanted to spend money, but I couldn't. Part of that increase in savings was probably, again, not just in China, but in the whole world. COVID-19 scared us all. And I think all of us decided that we're going to be better prepared for the next crisis and probably will save a little bit more money than we normally do. Now, we don't know the breakdown, but at least some of the increase in savings last year is going to be reversed this year in China. And my guess is that between the increase in consumption, which could be eight or 9% this year, maybe even a little more, and the increase in business investment aimed at consumption. Uh, let's ignore what happens to the export sector because that could go either way. But those two things should generate, in my opinion, between six to seven percentage points of growth this year. This is all healthy growth. Now, if China is satisfied with six to seven percent growth, then that means we won't need significant growth in real estate development or in public sector infrastructure spending. Um, in order to achieve that implicit growth target. There'll probably be some, but I would argue that this year, the debt to GDP ratio will probably only increase by one or two percentage points and 100% or nearly 100% of the growth will be generated by the good stuff. But it's important to remember that this is mostly a reversal of last year. Last year, the debt-to-GDP ratio went up by 25 percentage points. If it goes up by only one or two, that's still roughly 12, 13 percent a year for two years, which is double the, the, the rate of previous years. So this year will look quite good, but it's mainly a, a reversal of how bad last year looked. And then once that reversal in consumption has worked its way through, then, you know, then we're back to the same old problem which is that uh, consumption is too low a share of GDP for China to give up on, um, on, on non-productive investment to generate growth rates much above 2 or 3%. So I want to just go back to the sort of very question that we set up at the beginning. And I, I don't even really like the question or something like, but it's like this idea, it's like, okay, did, like, did China win? Like, was this year, like a, did it improve China's 
trajectory and standing in the world. And I guess part of the question is, and again, it goes to your book, is obviously some of it, the question has to do with China's own domestic policy, its own success at fighting COVID, but also in the changing policy stance uh, of other countries. And it goes back to the U.S. and whether the U.S. will continue to be the consumer of last resort. Uh, also, we had uh, yesterday, we were, recording, we were recording this February 25th, but Yesterday, we had Biden Biden coming out and talking about uh, focusing on rebuilding the U.S. semiconductor industry and not being as uh, dependent on China for uh, complex supply chain needs, which raises the question of whether maybe there will be a meaningful change. So looking down the road, is, is it possible that things that in the end that were catalyzed by COVID by 2020 end up really not playing to China's favor the way people are imagining right now? Well, you know, I think I think China's response to COVID-19 was incredibly impressive. You know, a month ago when there was that new outbreak, right. they moved really really quickly. I got tested several times. They re they you know, they reset up all of the barriers into my neighborhood, into every neighborhood. You had to uh you had to check your status constantly, etc. It's very inconvenient, but it's incredibly effective. Now, I think for institutional reasons, it's very difficult for countries in the U.S. and Europe to replicate that. But still, the Chinese responded really well to COVID-19. But the way I think about COVID-19 is a little bit differently. I don't think it changed everything. I think what it did is it accelerated everything. All of the underlying problems in the global economy, income inequality, trade imbalances, rising debt, etc., were seriously exacerbated by COVID-19. So for me, the the answer to the long-term question is that COVID-19 made adjustment all the more urgent for China, for the US, for Europe, for Brazil, for everybody. So the question is, which types of systems are better at adjusting? And this may just be the American in me speaking, but you know, I also think the historical precedents are pretty clear. For all of their faults, democracies are pretty good at adjusting. And when they adjust, it's always such a messy, ugly process that that's precisely when democracies lose their prestige, like in the 1970s or in the 1930s. The irony is that they lose their prestige exactly when they're doing what they do best. Autocracies have much more difficulty adjusting, and you can see in China. China responded to COVID-19 by exaggerating its previous supply-side responses. It's very difficult for autocracies to make that adjustment. Now, it's not impossible, and history isn't a perfect map of the future, but I would say the answer to your question, Joe, we're only really going to know over the next three to four years, and, and the answer will be, those systems that did a better job of adjusting to the acceleration COVID-19 created ultimately will be the quote-unquote winners, and those systems that had trouble adjusting are, are going to be worse off um, because of, uh, of COVID-19. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was great. All right, Michael Pettis uh, on All Thoughts yet again. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, that was great, Michael. Thank you so much for coming back. Sorry, can I just ask one question? What's the mood like in Beijing at the moment? And I, I'm curious, like, are people going out? To, I know you um, you had some interest in uh, nightclubs. Like, are people going out to clubs at the moment? Are they allowed to? 
Well, uh, things completely opened up around September. A lot of my bands were touring around China. It was amazing. Sold out shows everywhere they went, et cetera, et cetera. And then about a month ago, because of the new outbreak in Hebei mm -hmm. province, which surrounds us, uh, all the shows in Beijing were canceled and they haven't been reopened, but we're expecting them to reopen fairly soon. So, you know, you go outside and, and everything is packed. What's your favorite band right now that we should check out? Oh, God, it's like asking, you know, who's your favorite son or daughter? Yeah, no, it's not fair. <laughs> there, there is a lot of them. Uh, you know, uh, it's, well, what's interesting is that there was this new TV show that came out. You know, and all of our indie bands were indie bands. You know, the most famous one, Karstic Cars, could play and, you know, could draw an audience of 200. Now, when they announce a tour in three months, within a minute, half of the tour is sold out. And within a day, the entire tour is sold out. And these are venues of 2,000, 3,000 people. So we're really starting to see a, a, a sea change in the, uh, uh, you know, the attitude wow. towards what was a very indie underground music scene. So that's pretty exciting. I'm going to have to listen to some Carsick Cars. I, I've never cars, actually listened to them, but I see, on, I see they're on Spotify. So. PK-14, uh, Ourself Besides Me, Lonely Leary, uh, Dream Can. <laughs> There's so many, Joe. Great. I, I, you know, uh, I'll, have to, uh, I'll have to start adding them to my morning rotation. Thank you. There you go. And at some point, maybe we'll have to have you back and so for just a discussion on Chinese Indian punk bands and just talk about them. Um, I'd love to do it. That would be great. We'll do that as well. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. So, Joe, there's obviously a lot to go through from that conversation, but one of the things uh, that definitely struck me was Michael repeating this idea that COVID basically exacerbated existing trends. So if we saw China having some difficulty rebalancing its economy before, difficulty with um, inequality and things like that, 2020 really hardened that trend. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like this big macro thing that's beyond uh, China. And of course, I would say like in the middle of neck in the middle of last summer, there was probably more of a ah, COVID is going to change everything. And some things are probably mm -hmm. will change. But I also think a lot of things um, are, are going to get even more are clearly getting more extreme. And this sort of like Chinese macro imbalances uh, certainly looks like it's it's one of them. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was his description of adjustment periods in democracy and how when de democracies yeah. are going through a period of volatility or uncertainty, everyone starts writing articles about how, you know, the, the Chinese yeah. model is winning and the command economies have benefits and that sort of thing. But actually what's happening is that the Chinese economy just isn't adjusting very well while democracies are in the process of doing that adjustment. I'm not, sorry, I'm not nearly as um, no. lucid as uh, Michael <laughs> was on this, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I thought that was really interesting. Also, like his point about tech, like obviously it is really impressive in many cases what uh, some big, these tech, tech giants have done. But on the other hand, like in, the, in a, a country and an economy as large as China's, 
do they how much do they really move the needle yet in terms of like sort of macro discussions? And, you know, it's even like here, you know, even in the U.S., like, of course, we have a handful of these like incredibly successful startups and tech giants. But for the vast majority of Americans, that's not like they're working for them or it's not like they've seen like some huge economic uh, benefit from them other than perhaps as uh, consumers. And so, you know, you can imagine how in China it's even uh, that phenomenon is even more extreme where it's it's interesting. A lot of people making money, world class tech in some cases, but whether they actually move the macro dial is sort of another question. Right. Well, that was another thing in Michael's conversation that struck me, this idea of a tension between consumers and businesses and that you can't necessarily rebalance towards consumers without taking something away from business. Um, And I I guess it seems kind of obvious in retrospect, but you can see how that would be really politically sensitive for the Communist Party. Yes. And I was I'm glad he clarified what he's talking about when we when people talk about income that goes through local governments, because, of course, for the most part, like local governments in, you know, of course, any regional government in the U.S. wants more tax revenue, et cetera. But that's mm-hmm. not it's clearly a different dimension. And his explanation of why that would be a very sort of politically sensitive thing to rebalance income from local governments to the everyday household sector, that was uh, extremely helpful. I didn't really get that before. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have Michael on uh, on again to talk, um, I guess, the economics of Chinese indie rock bands. Does that work? Yeah. Or maybe we don't even have to talk eco. Why don't we just like have him play some of his favorite songs and then chat about <laughs> like we could do like we could just bands. Yeah, like a real music episode, you know, just let's listen to bands together. Oh, well, we maybe we should save him for like the uh, the variety show or something like that. Or have it yeah, as a oh my God. variety show. That'd be good. That's actually a really good idea. Maybe we could. Oh, that's a good idea. We should for or maybe our next live show, whether yeah. maybe online. What if we like talk to Michael? We did a little like eco chat and then we had him introduce one of his bands and they could play a few songs. I think that'd be fun. It'd be uh, like yeah. all bots, the China Club experience. Yeah. Oh, this is a good idea. All right. This is definitely what this is what this is what we have to do. Okay. Um, well, we recorded all of that. So Odd Lots listeners, you just had an insight into our uh, our work process for planning. Um, shall we leave it there? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Michael Pettis, on Twitter. He's at Michael X Pettis. Follow Laura Carlson, our producer. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.